Hello, everyone. If you heard our intro, you realize that something has changed. What has changed is the name of the show going oh, forward. I th- yeah, I thought you were going to give me bad news. Yeah, I'm sorry, Teos, but <laughs> the name of the podcast is now Firing Teos. <laughs> Woo, happy new year. Yeah. <laughs> the name of the podcast going forward will be the Mastering Dungeons podcast. Yeah. Down with D&D is now reborn in a new form. And just to thank everyone who has supported us and brought us up to this point, uh, I want to say thanks to Chris Nizek, Cindy Moore, Alex Swingle, uh, Mark Knappick, who sort of had the inspiration for this show many, many years ago. Uh, and then brought me on board to be a co-host. Thanks to all the shows and the hosts on the Misdirected Mark Network who have supported me throughout. throughout. Thank you to Senda and Rob, the current owners of the Misdirected Mark Network, for allowing us to uh, use your platform. Thanks to all our patrons who support our Patreon. And thank you, of course, to all the listeners out there who give us the impetus to get on the mics each week and talk about D&D. And thank you, Teos, for coming on and becoming a co-host. Thank you, Sean. It's been a great pleasure, and I'm excited. I, I like the new name. I like Mastering Dungeons, uh, and I think it's it's a good time for change. It's the new year. Yep. Right? Perfect. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole new mindset. So while we will have a new logo and a new Twitter account and new branding, We will continue to give you the same great content that we have been giving you as we move along into 2021. Just for a sort of a reset on the whole show, what do we do here on this podcast that is now called Mastering Dungeons? Well, this is what we think we do. And Teos can jump in with any editorial comments or additions that he so chooses. Uh, You said that with a grin. Yes. So... (laughs) This is what we like to think we do anyway. Uh, We talk about the latest news regarding Dungeons and Dragons uh, as a game, as a brand, and as a business. Um, We review the latest products that catch our eye, starting with the official releases from Wizards of the Coast and going down into any third-party product producers out there, whether it's publishers or people on the DMs Guild or Drive Through RPG or anywhere that's doing 5e material. We look at the voices in the D&D field and see what they have to say about these topics. Uh, we look at other role-playing games and games in general in the context of Dungeons and Dragons. And then we do whatever our patrons who support our show want us to talk about. So if you are a patron and you do want to uh, give us some ideas about what you want to hear, you have various ways to do that, which you know about through Patreon or through our forums, et cetera, et cetera. What about you, Teos? What what do you uh, think we do? I think that's a, a perfect capture, to, to be honest. And 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 you see it. We We look at news. We look at products. We try to examine the things that are relevant to D&D as a whole. And we try to always apply that in a way that's useful to you. Maybe that's the thing that I would add is, is that we, we, we look for this to be useful, right? Mm-hmm. To be a toolkit, to be the knowledge you need to stay current, to, to make your game better. Mm-hmm. Very true. Excellent addition. So with that, let's talk about the news 
the first bit of news is something from Monty Cook Games. They are kicking off what they're calling New Game Master Month. Teos, you want to lead us through that? Yeah, this is something that they've done, I don't know how many years now, at least three years. And they uh, partner with other systems. And these non-D&D systems all provide a here's how to become a DM with our system kind of course uh, that takes place, uh, I think, starting, yeah, starting January 5th. And through this website, which is newgamemastermonth.com, Monty Cook Games and the people that they have partnered with uh, deploy a series of blog posts that walk you through how to be a GM and you get to choose the system that you like. There are six systems this year, Numenera, Unknown Armies, Trail of Cthulhu, RuneQuest, Delta Green, and Monster of the Week. So if you're at all interested in GMing another uh, RPG, and even just general, uh, widely applicable tips on how to GM, this is an excellent way to do that. And I think, you know, running other systems will always make you a better DM. So, so mm -hmm. this is an excellent program to do. Yeah. There is no bad way to come at learning the, the art of game mastering. Uh, and for sure, learning other games gives you tips and tricks that you can apply to D&D. So thank you for sharing that, Deus. Yeah. Uh, the Tome Show podcast has been covering the Dungeon Master's guides from 1st edition through 4th edition, and they're currently covering 2nd edition, uh, comparing all of them to the 5th edition Dungeon Master's guide. Uh, as someone who has read pretty much all of those guides cover to cover, uh, people have definitely have differing opinions on what is useful in Dungeon Master's guide, whether it's the content itself or the way it is presented, the layout, that sort of thing. Uh, I have not listened to any of these yet though. So what, what is their, uh, what is their current bent on that? That's a great question. I, it's on my to-do list. These okay. are, you know, I, I like to keep a tab uh, tabs as I look at the <laughs> tabs, yeah. uh, of things I must experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, so this is for sure there, this will get listened to. Um, yep. but, but I, I can't help but think that if there's a, a, a thing you hear time and time again, it's that people don't read the dungeon master's guide mm -hmm. uh, true. with maybe the exception of just back in, in the very beginning, because I think, you know, there wasn't quite as much content. And so you kind of had to do something on those days, but, but that's the kind of, you know, people don't often look at the Dungeons, Dungeon Master's Guides closely. And I think maybe as a result of that, the question is what should be in the book, especially as various games, including D&D, put all of the relevant uh, rules that you need in the player's handbook. Mm -hmm. And so if all you need to play the game is in the player's handbook, the question becomes, well, what should be in the Dungeon Master's Guide and how do we present it? And that makes it a really hard thing to write. Sure. I mean, for for many editions, I don't think many people would have even cracked them if magic items weren't in <laughs> weren't yeah, in the, the two hit tables, right? Right, right. And, and so, it, yeah, I think it's an, an interesting question: is are we coming to a point where everything could be in a player's handbook, and the information that is generally put in a dungeon master's guide, like world building, um, pantheon building? 
things like that could be covered in more individualized products that that not only give you those rules, but show you how to apply those rules like an adventure uh, might or a campaign building book might. Yeah, it might do so better. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think that the 5e DMG tried to inspire uh, and I think it looked back at things like the AD&D and 2e Dungeon Master's Guide and said, well, what if we're less of an instruction manual and more of an inspiration mm -hmm. toolkit? Um, but but then it also is rules and you know and we, we hit this i think the easiest way for me to think about this is when we talked about uh wilderness travel right sure. and exploration where the rules are all over the place because they're trying to put them in the player's handbook and then they're trying to have this sort of secret dm stuff in the dmg right. and as a result it's kind of a mess and but there are great, great things in the 5e DMG. So it's, it's interesting. I, yeah. My favorite is still going to be, I always love the fourth edition set. To me, those were the most useful that were created, the DMG and DMG2. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, my favorite is probably the first edition one. Uh, but that's only because probably that's the one that I used the most uh, since that edition went on for so long. And since some of the that's how i learned so i really sure. did pour over that book despite there being lots and lots of things that i would never use in a game i mean it was full of all kinds of inspiration right and just yeah i, I certainly spent so much time in that book it was amazing yeah. but it also yeah it, it, it was it was such a different time back then i mean it's hard for gamers that are new today to imagine that you didn't know what your attack bonus was, mm -hmm. the DM had that page open and would tell you, right. right? That's just such a different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it, the, the game has definitely moved from out of the dungeon master's hands more into the player's hands yeah. uh, for, for sure. And which in some ways is great. And in some ways, depending on the kind of game you like lessens the experience a bit. Uh, but hey, so the question for you out there, listeners, is which is your favorite Dungeon Master's Guide? Uh, go on to our forums and, and let us know why uh, you rank one over another. Yeah. And our friend Greg Marks and Cobalt Press have put up their latest Trap Master article, and we've been covering these along the way. So Greg uh, hit one just in time for the holidays. Yeah, and he he uh, it's holiday themed and that it's all about ice. But whew, you know, if you if you thought Greg was a softy DM, all you have to look huh. at is this uh, trap that he put in here. And his his subject for this article is complex traps or traps where th that are that are the encounter. Mm -hmm. And he provides one trap in this article on the Cold Press site, which is an ice cave uh, with an ice altar and it has many many uh aspects to it there's things on the doors there's things in the ceiling there's something in the floor there's the altar itself and it's for levels five to ten but boy it, it could mince up some fifth level characters i'll tell you yeah and it, but it's neat it's, it's a very good example of if you want the experience to be a trap here is uh the kind of approach you can use to do that yeah I, I'm going to need to go look at that because I'm actually working on something right now that I have remastered several times and it's still 
it's it's a very hard thing to do well for a wide variety of players. Um, if you yeah, like, it really is. If you have players that just want to hit something with their sword to defeat it, and you put up a trap that they can't, it can turn uh, the the mood of the players can turn sour very quickly. That's a good point. That in traps, you you often do need to give them give those kinds of players who want to beat stuff up something mm -hmm. to beat up as part of the trap. Yeah. Um, or to make the tenor so obvious that you know that you're doing something a little different mm -hmm. and then you're going to engage with that for a while. Yeah. I, I had to really deal with this heavily when we did the Dungeon of Doom project mm -hmm. that I work on um, with the fine folks at Dwarven Forge. And so as part of their Kickstarter, they had this very trap-filled location. And some of the rooms are just very, very heavy traps. They're like this, where the, the trap is the encounter. Mm -hmm. And there's particularly one corridor, and this is all available for free. So if you want to see what I did with these kinds of things, you can you can download it for free, the Dungeon of Doom. Uh, but there is a corridor of traps, and and I, I have had such good times running that because the players know yeah. that this is nothing but shenanigans in this trap-filled corridor, right. and they come up with all sorts of things. And yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> it's a it's a fun thing to run. Yep. And we've talked about traps for whole shows before. So uh, you can go back to previous uh, episodes of the show and hear what we've had to say. So that is the news for this week. We are now going to get into our first review segment, which is reviewing Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, we have talked about the Barbarian and the Bard, and we are now ready to talk about the Cleric. So the cleric, like the others, have new optional class features that you can use. The first being additional spells. And uh, like the other classes that have had spells, i.e. the bard, uh, the additional spells seem pretty reasonable. I would say. Yeah. And yeah, anything that nothing too surprising. There's two new ones that are in this book. Uh, and then you have some that when you look at them, you just think, oh, weren't these already? uh you know cleric spells and then you go oh wow powered heal was only a bard spell before huh so now you have that yeah i did not know that yeah cool so at level two there is a new power called harness divine power what this does is lets you use a bonus action to expend one of your channel divinities to regain an expended spell slot of a level no higher than half your uh what's pb oh your proficiency bonus proficiency bonus yeah so if your proficiency bonus is four then you can do it up to level two you can use this ability a number of times uh equal to one at second level twice at six three times at 18th and then you regain the ability to do this with a long rest it's kind of a weird so the, i guess the idea is if you have unspent if you're going to take a short rest and you have unspent channel divinity, you can just get spell slots back. Mm -hmm. And and that's sort of what this is sort of, it's like an insurance policy where you're not going to waste your channel divinities if you have them sitting around. Yeah. It's okay. funny because that shows what little of a power gamer I am sometimes <laughs> because I never even thought that, oh yes, this is something that you should do right before you take your long rest or your short rest to use these channel divinities uh, and, and get spell slots back. I always picture it as happening in the action. 
Oh no, I, I need, I am out of spells. I need this slot. So I am going to use this channel divinity that I don't have in, in the heat of the moment to get that spell, that, that spell slot back. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, either the way, is, yeah. there are a lot of, this, this is another thing this, that I just to nitpick. I feel like there are a lot of spell slots anyway. Uh, I, I play a cleric that I think is now all the way at like 12th or 14th, somewhere between 12th and 14th level, mm -hmm. you know, you, yeah, sometimes you're a little low, but then you just dig deeper. And I, I sort of like it. Like I sort of like running out of spell slots on my casters Yeah, because then I have to do things I don't usually do. I can't even so, think of yeah. a time with maybe, you know, within the last four or five years of playing or DMing where a character ran out of spell slots once they reached like fifth level yeah uh, so yeah it's there it's it's useful if needed and it's a good example of allowing the characters to trade a more powerful resource for a less powerful resource if the if the need for flexibility comes up yeah i just i don't know that this was necessary it just seems like more power for because yeah yeah again the only time i could see it really becoming useful is really low level characters yeah. um, who who might need it and one thing that's interesting as we you know have focus on sort of today's tools right if you're doing this on paper it's fairly easy to just say to your players hey we're using this optional class feature but not this other one mm -hmm. uh, but now we get to dnd beyond which a lot of people use and whether it's easy to turn these on or off, right? It can force a player, a DM's hand as to whether these optional features are optional or not. This is true. This is true. Especially if you're running sort of in an organized play setting um, where people may or may not understand what the latest rules are and they just or may sort quote of, unquote forget. Oh, yes, quote unquote forget. Actually forget or forget uh, <laughs> that these rules are or aren't being used. Okay, so at level four, you get cantrip versatility. Uh, you can replace one cantrip you learned from this class's spellcasting feature with another from the cleric spell list, i.e. swap out a cantrip. And that's whenever you would get a ability score improvement yep. or feat. And so, you know, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing major about that. Level eight starts to get interesting. Um, they have a, a new optional class feature called Blessed Strikes. And this would replace not instead you know not with but it would actually replace the divine strike or the potent spell casting features that many cleric spell uh, subclasses get so with blessed strike when a character takes damage from one of your cantrips or weapon attacks you can also deal a 1d8 radiant damage to that creature once you deal the damage you can't use this feature again until the start of your next turn so let's talk about what Divine Strike and Potent Spellcasting did, because I think that's important. Yeah, Potent... I think that the, the Divine Domain we're going to cover today, it gives you Divine Strike. Mm -hmm. So you can just say that on at level eight, you would get on each of your turns when you hit a creature with a weapon attack, you can cause the attack to deal an extra 1d8, in this case, psychic damage to the target. Mm -hmm. When you reach 14th level, it increases to 2d8. So your weapon attacks are doing, dealing more damage. Once right. per turn. And potent spellcasting 
essentially lets you add your wisdom bonus to damage dealt by your cantrips. Mm -hmm. So by the time you reach higher levels, you're getting plus three, plus four, probably plus five uh, every time you deal damage with your cantrip. So what does that mean? What do we lose? What do we gain from Blessed Strike? I think, I think obviously people believe that potent spellcasting wasn't either A, strong or B, sexy enough <laughs> because it was just... Uh, your wisdom bonus. Right, adding your wisdom bonus to your cantrip. Uh, you know, that's... As a rule, it's fine. But as a cinematic experience in the narrative, it really doesn't do a lot. So... Uh, in that sense, I think people were looking at something to replace uh, potent spellcasting. Yeah, and, and maybe to be a little more flexible. So this way, either cantrips or weapon attacks are boosted. Mm -hmm. You get 1d8 radiant, but there is no power up at a certain level. So mm -hmm. potent spellcasting, it's your wisdom modifier. So as your wisdom increases, you're doing more damage. Yep. Uh, with divine strike, it gets to 2d8. So you, you, this is capped at 1d8. Mm -hmm. um, it once again has language that says, once you deal damage, you can't use this feature again until the start of your next turn. Um, Divine Strike is only on your turn, but this is once per round. So, so it could work with an opportunity. True. Attack of opportunity, right? It could work. Yeah. So it, it's interesting that it, it's slightly different the whys of it i'm not entirely sure yeah so so i think what it, it adds flexibility like you said because if you are a for some reason a cleric that never uses your cantrips you either use your spell slots or weapon attacks potent spell casting does nothing for you and vice versa if you had divine strike but you used your cantrips most of the time you were never getting to use that so i can see the yeah. flexibility there and People just like to roll dice, right? <laughs> yeah, they do. People like to, oh, I get the D8 plus the D6 plus the D4 for this and that, and they just a big old handful of dice and roll it uh, within reason. You know, they love to add up that damage. So I think... Yeah, one, one D8 feels stronger than four, right? Exactly. It's, it's the same thing. But <laughs> one D8, rolling a D8 does feel better for players a lot of the time, even though number-wise it usually works out the same unless you're talking about a crit where you get to roll the, the die, die again, obviously. So yeah. it's, it's there. It's, it's clear at least it's not yep. overly fidgety. Just take that extra die and use it. If you use your weapon or your cantrip. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm down with that. Now let's talk about the first of the new divine domains. We're going to talk about the domain order today. I am the law. Uh, yes. <laughs> so this originally appeared in the Guild Master's Guide to Ravnica. And I, I almost remember talking about this, whether it was when it came out in Unearthed Arcana, whether it came out in the Guild Master's Guide, or whether it's here. Uh, so let's go through it. Uh, level one, you get domain spells. 
most of them do seems reasonable to me uh yeah and and, you know they're all about that theme right Mm -hmm. of of order law devotion to institutions philosophy Mm -hmm. uh with a little bit of flexibility so you get like mass healing word slow compulsion locate creature dominate person right it's got that kind of feel to it yep and i'm going to talk about that that later uh the sort of feel we'll get on with the other ones at level one you get proficiency with heavy armor and then either intimidation or persuasion so it again goes along with sort of the (laughs) robocop theme of uh right of of keeping judge dread right it's either of those right of uh, keeping keeping law and order and you're going to do it usually uh with either your voice or with a heavy weapon and lots of armor Uh, Also at level one, you get the voice of authority. So if you cast a spell with a spell slot of first level or higher, and you target an ally with that spell, the ally can use their reaction immediately after the spell to make one weapon attack against a creature of your choice that you can see. And so what do you think, Taz? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, what I like about it is it embraces the, the, buffer healing type persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a really cool reward for that. I, I dig that. Yep. So it not only would it work with, say, uh, cure wounds, you would also work with something that you cast on several people like bless, bless. but mm-hmm. only one creature can take that benefit. It, it clarifies because uh, that was my first thought. Oh, bless you hitting everybody. Yeah, it, it, I, it leans into what I think of a cleric doing, which is more of this, you know, buffing and, and protecting and healing. And, and this rewards you. And, and I think it's fast enough to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, hey, I bless you and you and you and you take an uh, immediate reaction if you'd like to make weapon attack. Cool. Like, yep. That's neat. Yep. That uh, That is within, I think, the bounds of a quick enough turn. And also know if you multi-class, it'll work with other classes' spells because it doesn't say must be a cleric spell. Oh, yeah. So if for some reason you are playing a bard or a wizard and you cast haste on someone, uh, you can also, after the spell effect starts, give them that attack, Uh, which could lead to some interesting things. You polymorph someone. Oh, and (laughs) and also go ahead and take that attack. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. At level two for the order domain, you get your channel divinity ability, which is orders demand. As an action, you present your holy symbol and each creature of your choice that you can see or hear within 30 feet of you must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or be charmed by you until the end of your turn or until the charmed creature takes any damage. You can also cause any of the charmed creatures to drop what they are holding when they fail the saving throw. Uh, I'm going to let you go first because I have things to say. (laughs) Uh, I mean, charm is always interesting because I think when you ask people what charm does, Mm -hmm. they think it makes them totally your buddy, but it's it's actually a very narrow thing that they will not attack you, but they have no problem attacking any of your allies. So it doesn't always do what you want, right? Because a lot of times we, you know, we might think of this like, hey, you know, cease fighting and and okay they drop their weapons but picking your weapon up is something you can do on your turn without the loss of an action 
uh, and it doesn't say you're also dropping your shield or anything like that. So you just pick up your weapon and they're right back to attacking your buddies. They're just not going to attack you. Uh, you know, I like that it can be used outside of combat. Uh, but again, it's a wisdom saving throw. So if you're dealing with a group, the, the way I always look at these sort of situations is if I want to try to talk my way into something, I might look to something like this. But if there are two guards, are they go both going to fail their wisdom saving throw? So then I'm probably better off not even using this ability. And I'm just going to make a social interaction anyway, because yeah. I'm probably better off trying to talk the DM into letting me get past these guards than I am seeing if the wisdom saving throw fails on multiple creatures. Yeah. So that's kind of a lot to, that I'm saying there, but all of which is to say, to me, this tries to do a little too much and doesn't particularly do it well. Yeah, I I agree. I, I'm i cool with the charm in the sense that you're protecting yourself for a round. And the dropping the weapon sort of it's either useless or it's the win button because what does it mean to drop your weapon? As you said, nothing. If the creature that dropped the, the object goes next, they just reach down and they pick it up. But what happens if you're fighting a wizard with their uh, spell focus in their hand, you cast the spell on them, they drop it. The rogue goes next, and the rogue picks up the the spell focus and runs away. Then it becomes a, wait a second. Can this wizard now not cast spells? Can they only spell cast spells with verbal components? What's that rule? Wait, let yeah, me go look. Mess. And then it becomes a mess of, especially if you have players, or if you yourself are someone that really gets into this rule of, you can't cast a spell unless you have your components and your focus and this and, you know, and that uh, it, it, it can, even if it doesn't mean anything in the long run, it could mean something in terms of the flow of the game. Yeah, sure. And, and if, if the creature is flying or elevated, then, it, you know, or standing over a grate or whatever, right. then it could be. I don't think this creature can attack me anymore. Right. Oh. Yeah. Right. And and that was the problem with things like sundering in third edition. Right. Where you sunder the the bad guys plus five battle axe of whatever doom. Right. And, oh, third edition was just and all we started on dual wielding whips that could right. disarm at range and then toss it somewhere. And, oh. Right. It, you know, that it becomes an instant win button that, that yeah. players can hit every round. Uh, so just the, this whole disarming in general, I'm not superly thrilled on. I understand that, that it could have a place in a game. I just don't like it to have a huge place in the game constantly. You know, I'd wonder if you could do something like, could this have been something like you spend your action to speak to one or more creatures within 30 feet of you that can hear you and see you. And so long as you keep talking, they won't attack as long as they're not attacked. Yeah. Uh, that is, I think that's to me what I want to do with this as a player. Like I want to be able to pause a combat. Right or pause a situation right to me these rules don't allow me to do that they, they make it very risky and unlikely that actually yeah. i'll get any real change out of it 
Right. And and I understand the, the designer's desire to keep it as simple as possible using the rules that are already there. Hence the charmed, um, you know, and, and hence the, just, they, they drop an object uh, if you want them to. The, the, yeah. what, you're, what you're asking for is, I think, better if the DM understands how to control that yeah. and h- how not to make it something that can be abused. But what always, I mean, because, you know, I've, I've played through so many scenarios where I've tried to stop combat and stopping combat once it's engaged is really difficult. And especially when you're talking about saving throws being part of it, because mm-hmm. all you need is the one bad guy that makes their wisdom saving throw and, and you can't stop the combat. Right. And so if this it's is true. supposed to, if orders demand is supposed to impose order upon a group of people, yeah, the chances are low. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, I think that would have been an interesting way to, to go about it. Um, the wording is, you know, always the, uh, is always sort of the hurdle that you have to get over. Yep. At level six, you get embodiment of the law. If you cast a spell of the enchantment school using a spell slot of first level or higher, you can change the spell's casting time to one bonus action for this casting, provided the spell's casting time is normally one action. And you can use this feature a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. And then you regain that use after you finish a long rest. So cast enchantment spells as a bonus action. No problem there. Uh, cast it and then cast a cantrip too. Uh, my, my question was, as soon as I read that and then I started thinking, is this the order domain or the charm domain? Yeah. Because yeah. it seems like everything that you can do has to do with sort of enchantments or affecting the minds of other people. So, And that's where, yeah, the, the, the concept of this, you know, is it lawful? to sort of mentally like is dominate person something that lawful people use and I, and I want to say yeah but in certain context and and yeah. so when you start pushing into super enchantment then it feels like you're beguiling and not really like right yeah, yeah. And, and and I understand that 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 tendency to to conflate those two things right law is peace except when it's not right uh, and so you know when i read order domain i didn't read it necessarily as a good or a bad thing it's just it's a yeah. thing and so you know bane clerics of bane mm-hmm. would be all about order and yeah, doing whatever correct. whatever it took to to get that order this so, is a great bane cleric for sure yeah yep so it, it it doesn't necessarily have to be all you know lovey-dovey holding hands kumbaya sort of thing it, it uh <laughs> it, it could just as easily be sort of a nasty uh yeah order yeah. so at, at level eight you get divine strike uh, on each of your turns when you hit a creature we already talked about that uh with a weapon attack you can cause the attack to deal 1d8 psychic damage an extra 1d8 psychic damage when you reach 14th level that increases to 2d8 so if you want to do the psychic damage and you want to do it do more of it at higher levels um, then you want to keep this divine strike otherwise you can go up and and switch it out with blessed strike yeah but stay tuned yeah (laughs) so at level 17 you get orders wrath if you deal your divine 
strike damage to a creature on your turn. <laughs> Therefore, you don't want to get rid of uh, right. the divine strike. You can curse that creature until the start of your next turn. The next time one of your allies hits that cursed creature with an attack, the target also takes 2d8 psychic damage and the curse ends. You can curse a creature in this way only once per turn. So, Teos, what are players going to say? <laughs> hey, can I use Blessed Strikes as the optional feature and then have the, this order's wrath still work? The and answer, answer is no. no. Yeah, and in fact, it, it's no uh, per the rules. This is not just because it's it's the word change. I mean, it, it, it right. actually, there are, in Tasha's, there is a general guidance about uh replacing features and it says if you take a feature that replaces another feature you gain no benefit from the replaced one and don't qualify for anything in the game that requires it so change at your own risk yeah uh, so it's funny that you know because i mean obviously they didn't write this for this book this comes from uh the previous published material but uh, from ravnica but you know it's funny that hey here's this optional feature by the way the first order domain you read will not work well right. if you do that swap. Yep. And of course, uh, for a 17th level feature, that seems pretty weak to me. Uh, <laughs> you're basically doing letting someone do nine points of psychic damage. And that's only if you hit with your divine strike to begin with. Yeah. So you've got to deal your divine strike. Now and then, yeah, and then the, the next, next person has to hit it. And, mm -hmm. And so at 17th level, does a nine extra points of psychic damage in a round do much? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I would have just bumped up the damage a lot uh, because how many times are clerics going to be attacking with their weapon um, right. or their cantrips to, to do this? I'm sorry, just with their weapons to do this divine yeah, strike just at that high level. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it it is a an interesting interesting choice that they 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 did with that. But mm -hmm. yeah. So that was the first of three subclasses. We will talk about the next two subclasses for clerics next oh. time. Oh, before we switch away, can I just uh, point out the art in this section? Okay, uh, is a really cool dragonborn cleric of order who's for some reason not wearing heavy armor, but is still really cool. And they are carrying a shield that is like a sheriff's badge. Uh, it has a five-point star sort of embedded on it. So it looks like a, an, the shield is basically a, a super humongous uh, sheriff badge, basically. But stuck to the front of it is a wanted poster for the wizard Kellick. And that's a kind of neat throwback because Kellick shows up in the D&D &D cartoon and shows up in... Uh, an old adventure quest for the Hearthstone that was based off of characters that appeared in the D&D cartoon. Oh, wow. I think he's also in the Shady Dragon Inn. But he's sort of this wizard from like way back when. Uh, and and so it's kind of hilarious that he has a wanted poster for Kellick <laughs> into his, his shield. Like that's a really neat bit of, you know, old yeah. lore. Perfect for a book like Tasha. So hats off to whoever came up with that or art order. That is really nice. Cool. So now we will move on to our second review, which is chapter three of Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. 
So we are going to do our best to get through all of chapter three after taking several, several, several episodes to get through chapters one and two. But I think we can do this because chapter three is sort of the dungeon delve or a dungeon delve um, yep. that may or may not take a long time. Uh, it may take a you very short amount of time it. or you might not even do it. That That is the problem. So as a recap, uh, you start with chapter one that with characters that have been in Icewind Dale for a while, you can play one of two starting quests plus some additional town quests. Um, once you do roughly five of these, uh, you're level four. And then chapter two is quests or tall tales that push you to explore different wilderness areas surrounding the 10 towns. Um, they start at fourth level and you can gain a level for every two or three game sessions or for a level for neutralizing two or three locations or accomplishing something extraordinary, such as ending a Goliath feud. So the guy, now you want to take over here? Because this is where yeah. it gets interesting. So what the, yeah, they, so the guidance they give you in chapter two is that at seventh level, you go to chapters five to seven, which leaves you with the question, what about three to chapters three to four? And the thing is that chapters three to four directly lead to chapter five. So it's kind of confusing guidance. And what I would say is that realistically, you should start chapter three, which is what we're going to talk about today, when the PCs are close to sixth. And that way you'll end chapter three to four at around seventh level. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when your character, so what this means is that for chapter two, you start at fourth, you're going to do to get from fourth to sixth level, you're going to do roughly four to six sessions of play or explore four to six locations out of the 13 or do like two very cool things. And at that point you can be either fifth or sixth. And, you know, it's up to you if you want to do some extra stuff and not give xp but but it's just you know that's what you're doing and then you're gonna throw in the events that are in this adventure mm -hmm. and so this chapter this sort of mini adventure within the the center of the book talks about a duragar who is planning an attack from a fortress located in the mountains of the spine of the world this uh duragar is named I can I can pronounce this. It's Zardorak Sunblight. And he is trying to gather as much Shardlin as possible. And with the Shardlin he has already uh, grabbed, he creates a dragon made of the Shardlin. And he sends that to attack the Ten Towns. That's the premise. So what leads the characters here well in chapter two nothing does nothing. None, none of the locations in chapter two point back to this fortress or the duragar that you may have encountered in chapter one so chapter one is where you can lay the seeds for this However, you don't want to lay the seeds and have them go directly there because then they're only going to be second or third level and it will be too hard for second or third level characters to take on yeah. uh, anything that's in this chapter or the next chapter. And it, yeah, it would short circuit chapter two because you would go straight to... So it's, it's this weird dance that you have to do somehow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. 
So in chapter one, the sort of clues, the breadcrumbs that would lead them to this fortress are the town quest for Kerkonig, where the Duragar are searching for Shardolin, uh, and they steal some things, and then you follow their foot track, their their footprints out of town um, to Kelvin's Cairn, where then you can meet one of the sons of Zardok, Sunblight, uh, who is collecting the Shardland for his father. The other is the East Haven town quest, or an area in East Haven, I should say. It's not a, the actual town quest, but it's an area where there are Durgar hiding in a frozen over ferry. There is a map uh, in that location. So if you defeat or even just raid that area and the Durgar escape, you can find a map leading to this fortress. And this is where you want to be very careful and not, not let the characters just, oh, here's a map. Let's follow it. Because uh, things could get pretty nasty pretty quickly. Uh, and it's a- hard to stop the characters because, you know, to me, that map is more compelling than a lot of the things that are in Chapter 2. Very so, true. You know, so, so that's where maybe you want to, at this point, think about things you could you know if you're reading this now and haven't yet run chapter one you can think about well maybe i want to have the things be like in a strange coded language Mm -hmm. and maybe there's someone in town that's good at these kinds of things and they're slowly working on it yeah so they can reveal to you hey i decoded your map or something you know (laughs) right but as we're going to discuss shortly you don't even need any of these things because there is a quest that is ready made to give the characters if you so choose in to start chapter three so on to chapter three uh you can either come to uh know about this fortress the sunlight fortress via the quests we already talked about or the speaker a speaker of any of the ten towns may just come to you and say hey we heard that there's this bad guy in this bad place. Oh, and here's a map. And could you go investigate for me and, (laughs) and leave it at that. So you could combine all of these things. And as Teo said, I think that's the best example is you find a coded map, let the code be broken by an NPC. Then when you, as the DM know that your players are ready and your story is ready for this, then you can have the NPC say, oh, I broke the code. This is what I found, and it's not looking good. You might want to investigate quickly. The other thing that occurred to me is that the concept of Chapter 2 is sort of going out into wider areas. But actually, the um, the Kyrakonig quest around uh, going out to, to Nildar's location, that's out in Kelvin's Cairn. So this can actually fit as a chapter two quest if you didn't use it in chapter one mm-hmm. and you could just bump up the difficulty slightly yeah. and it would work. Yep. So the uh, we are going not to go through step by step in this chapter because it is very much a long, although potentially short dungeon delve and not every Every room sort of has something in it, but not every room is important or needs to be explicated uh, by by Teos and myself. But there are some things that we do want to point out to you. So the speaker's quest that I talked about, where the t- one of the town speakers gives you uh, the information that they captured a Durgar, 
they forced it to divulge the location of their mountain stronghold. Uh, their leader is Zardarok Sunblight. He's going to conquer Icewind Dale and destroy all of us for the good of the Ten Towns. Please penetrate the fortress, slay this evil warlord, and destroy his terrible weapon. Please and thank you. Uh, and can I just say, like, this is fine because we only have so much space in the book, so I know why this appears. But my recommendation to any DM is you have the characters capture this guy. Yep. Like, come up with any random premise. It can be the town speaker calls to you to just see how things are going. And there is some, you know, something happens, like a thing, uh, something falls over in the room. Mm -hmm. And there's an invisible Dwergar there. Right. Who is a spy and just yeah. capture him. And, and that can be, and, and the right, the speaker, when you capture them, the speaker goes, well, you've got to go follow this up. You know, mm -hmm. what this captured guy is saying that there's a plan against all of us and we're going to fail. I want you on this. Right. But give them a little, give the players a little more power and a little more sense of belonging yeah. than just having this feel like any other quest. Right. And I, I understand that there is a problem with D and D and role-playing games in general of capturing someone that has too much information because then the, the players could just be like, draw us an entire map of your entire, and what, what, what dangers are there are so we can bypass all of them. And so I understand as a designer, the desire to avoid that. But you also need, as Teo said, to give the characters the ability to interact with this other than just have the bare necessities presented to them. And I wish the adventure had done that. I wish the adventure had said, this is exactly what the captured Durgar knows and what he's able to tell and willing to tell. Give a couple of you know, persuasion checks to get just a little more information. Yeah. But give the, the DMs that help that they might need to, to navigate that touchy and um, hard-to-manage subject of what the captured enemy knows. So you get to uh, a section called Trouble in the Fortress, where it talks not about what the characters are going to do, but what's happening inside the fortress, which is actually really funny and really interesting. Yeah, I so, like this a lot. Go, yeah, you go ahead and then uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so, so there, there are two main aspects. The first is Zardarok, who, as he has increasingly worked with Shardalan, has become corrupted, and he is super paranoid. So he sees all of these conspiracies, even when there are none, and this also blinds him to any real conspiracies that are taking place. And I think this is something you want to run with as a DM, right? That that everything is uh, a, a, a dagger being hidden. Everything is a danger. Everything is subterfuge. Uh, and even the real subterfuge can be something he doesn't see. And that's great. Because the real conspiracy happening in his fortress is that he is wooing a potential new wife. His, I think, third or fourth. She is Grandolfa Musgart, who has been called up from the Underdark, where the Durgar are from. And he, uh, being Tsar Durak, is trying to convince her to marry him and combine their uh, vast resources. She, in she's turn, up for it. well, she's up for something, but it's not <laughs> marriage. She 
realizes that he is sort of going a little bit paranoid because of of this Shardlin. So she wants to overthrow him and tie uh, her fortune with his and become stronger for it. So she's there along with her bodyguards, and she's also already talked a few of Zardarok's troops into siding with her. So this will become an interesting point in the character's exploration of the fortress, as they may run into Duragar, who are happy to not necessarily help them, but not stand in the way if they do take on Zardarok and his forces. Yeah. It's also, I like that they explained a little bit here that he is so paranoid, he's paranoid of his two sons. So that's why he sent them into the 10 towns to different locations. So they couldn't be in the home base plotting against him. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And so your job then as the DM is to show the players this in some way in an organic but demonstrable way that they can then grasp this and not just enjoy the story, which they should, but use that as part of their planning in how to deal with this problem. And and, and the trick here is always whether the players can A, grasp the possibility of this and B, find ways to do something with it. Yep. And so that's sort of what we're going to look at uh, as we go through this. But <laughs> but first you have to find the fortress. <laughs> yeah. And so you can get a map from Zardarok's son aboard the, fer- of, aboard the ferry, as we said. You can also get it from the speaker who triggered uh, the quest. Or you can just question some random Durgar who you see like <laughs> walking around, which <laughs> is what the adventure says. Although the, you don't see too many random Durgar walking around. Um, so, invisible. yep. So when you approach the fortress, it the, the adventure says, you know, if you want to show the characters how hard this is to get to this mountaintop in the spine of the world, you can go back and you can look at our previous sections where we talk about traveling in the mountains. And you could have avalanches and you can have random encounters and you can make it very, very difficult. Whether you want to do that or not may depend on what we're about to tell you. Because as the characters approach the fortress, they see a dragon made of Shardolin flying away and heading straight for the Ten Towns. This then presents an interesting question for the characters. Do they turn around and head back to the Ten Towns to try to stop this dragon before it can do too much damage? Or do they go forward into the fortress. And I don't have a good answer for that. But I do think that depending on how you present it, you could end up making that decision for the characters. If you make the trip too hellacious and they it takes weeks and it's you know walking uphill both ways in the snowstorm, they're not going to want to turn right back around and and do it again. So if you are going to push them in a certain direction, this is always true, but it's even more so true here. You have to be careful with how you present it. 
because your presentation could sort of make the decision for them. Yeah, it, it's it's tough because, um, see, this Zardarox Fortress is where? That's in the... It's down in the spine of the world. Yeah, spine of the world. And, and so that is not close as things are i mean it's, it's it's an edge of the map kind of thing right so it takes some getting to get there and to me the thing about this that i i kept going on in my head is what are most groups going to do presented with us because the box text is you see this sheer mountain wall rising more than 100 feet before you carved high on the wall are rows of arrow slits with lights burning behind them blah 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 and then as you climb up this narrow staircase from high above comes a loud grinding noise as large sheets of ice break off. Suddenly great doors of ice previously hidden open more than 300 feet above you. From between them flies a huge dragon made of dark eyes. Its eyes glow with bright golden light, lets out a terrible roar, mm -hmm. flies away from the fortress and turns and heads north toward 10, ten towns. Right. And then the question is, what do you do? Right. And the way it's presented, it doesn't seem like it's much of a choice to me because you've already described this grand fortress. So it's there, right? It's it's sort of the story is telling you here is this grand fortress. What's what as what your player mind or your story mind? What does it say? It says, here's this fortress. This thing just came out of. I need to get into the fortress. Uh, you know, we just possibly spent several a, a 10 day or more traveling through this blizzard and upscaling mountains do do we just turn around and and go back without exploring what's here uh and i don't know about your players but in my experience players could spend 40 minutes talking about whether to pick a lock on a door or not sure much less a huge decision like this that's going to um affect them for the next several sessions perhaps yeah i i i think this completely falls on how the dm explains it because i i also think if you say to characters if you just read that box text and you just sit back mm -hmm. they'll be like weird a dragon headed towards 10 towns it doesn't it's totally different than you say to them you know that if you do nothing Right. It's going to destroy town after town after town. Mm -hmm. uh, or if they happen to remember what was said by the speaker, assuming they got that quest, which is all about how aims to conquer Icewind Dale and destroy us all. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you put those things together, like, oh, and, and even uh, one of the other clues that you can find in chapter one is about building something to destroy the 10 towns. Right. So if, if you know this is the destruction of the 10 towns and you were to ask them, players, do you want to go back? They're going to be like, well, I mean, duh, we have to, right? Like, otherwise the 10 towns will be destroyed. Right. But but I don't think it's, it's quite that easy because I think the next question from players is, how far away are we? Mm -hmm. How fast was the dragon flying? And why do we think we can do anything about it? How is another right, one? Right. It's... If we if it takes us seven days to walk back and the dragon is going to be there in two hours, is it already too late? Maybe the answer to stopping the dragon is in the fortress. 
the, and, but the worst part is you as the DM, if you're reading this book from cover to cover, don't have any of those answers. Right. You have you, no idea. You don't know where the dragon's heading. You don't know how long it's going to take the dragon to get there. You don't know what the dragon's going to do once it gets there. You don't have any of those answers. So right. the, the, the book itself makes you read ahead to yeah. be able to and, answer some of those questions. And let's do a little bit of spoilery in that chapter four uh, starts with saying, the 10 towns won't survive the attack of Zardarok's dragon without the character's intervention. The characters delayed their return to Ten Towns to confront Zardarok in his lair. The amount of time they spent determines how many Ten Towns settlements are victimized before they can intervene. If the characters forego the attack on the fortress and waste no time chasing after the dragon, they have a good chance of catching up to it somehow before too many Ten Towns settlements are lost. <laughs> before too and many. <laughs> and chapter four is all about this sort of how many, uh, when do they arrive, how quickly, and then uh yeah preventing the dragon's destruction which is all right very... so if you don't if the the short version did not read uh of of what we're just saying is you as the dm are going to have to do some massaging here you are going to have to figure out what is the best way that you see narratively or game wise this going for your players if you want your players to turn around and tackle the dragon first have them see the dragon going as they start up the mountain, not as they get to the top. That then takes away that impetus, that desire, that sort of narrative imperative to do what's directly in front of you. Then what's directly in front of them isn't this fortress that you've just described. What's in front of them is a dragon flying directly toward one of the 10 towns. Then they will do that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so maybe let's assume that you go into the fortress. Right. So let's talk and, about the fortress and and hit the highlights. All right. So highlights are going to be interesting because it's a 37 area dungeon. Um, and Zardarok can be in different locations based on a random roll of the die, or you can choose where to place him. Uh, just there are three levels. There's a command level, which is sort of the ground floor. Then there is an ice gate level, which is the top where the dragon flew out of some gates. And then there is the forge level, which is the bottom level. So overall, there's a lot going on. And much depends on where you want to place Zardarok. Uh, if you place him, say, in his chambers, he's essentially by himself. Whereas if you place him in the uh forge room there's dozens of creatures around uh that that could help him so yeah, there's four locations right? right his throne barking orders praying before the statue or torturing a dwergar accused of treason right so you know it, it it could be different and that just assumes that the characters walk right in and go right to town <laughs> yeah uh, to, to town metaphorically uh, <laughs> if they wait if they hide somewhere you could have him moving anywhere uh, within his his fortress. Yeah. Uh, so the, the interesting thing is there are really two ways in. The, the less likely way is through the gates that were just opened way up high where the dragon came out. So if the characters can fly or can climb well, they could get up there and go in that. It's more likely that they go in through the normal front gate 
of the fortress, which is area one of the command level, not, not surprisingly. Now, these doors are basically impenetrable without magic. However, the Duragar who's keeping an eye on the gates is one of those who is loyal to Grandolfa and actually wants the characters to come in and wreak havoc on Zordarok. So he just flips a switch and the doors open. <laughs> so I do like that. It is, it is funny, but you always, as a designer, have to think, this is funny. This is cool. I love that. What are the characters going to do? The door is open. The characters are standing there. <laughs> Maybe they haven't even searched the doors yet. They just opened. Okay. What's a character going to think? Most likely they're going to think, oh, they're expecting us. So let's just walk in whistling. Okay. But... If they walk in whistling, area two, which is sort of the first guarded area they have to walk through past the doors, there is another guard watching that area, and that guard is not uh, loyal to Grandalfa. She is an actual guard who is on watch. So as soon as she sees the characters, she's going to shout the alarm, which brings nine Duragar within two rounds. Just to start. Yeah. So that's it's a it's a manageable combat, but it's not easy. And and it's and it it throws you into straight combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we are assaulting this fortress, which generally with fortress is not what you want to do. But I mean, unless you just want the dungeon crawl, right. kill every kill everything in every room experience. But yeah. It's interesting it, it, that decision of having the one, two, right? The I open the doors, but then I'm going to launch an attack for you. And as you said, exactly, if the doors open, then you think, well, someone saw us. So why would we hide? Right. And then you're going to reveal yourself. It, it's very interesting. Right. And, and you don't yet know about this duality going on within. Right. So there's, there's no way to play that up. Uh, so maybe have the guard who lets them in whisper through one of the arrow slits, uh, you know, sneak in, you know, something that would, will not just sort of ambush them with a huge combat right away. The other possibility would be to have that Dwergar that, that was on your side that let you in go into that room where the person on watch is and clearly be distracting them. Yep. Right. Like, you you, walk, you hear voices and you look through the arrow slit and you can see that the guard who had been at the arrow slit is turned and their attention is on someone that's talking to them and they're looking at you and kind of right. giving you the get yeah. going look. Yeah. Right? So so that that is the that is another way. So right then it doesn't call for impossible stealth checks and it gives you the idea that something is up and be on the lookout for the strangeness. Uh, that's that's going on within this uh, fortress. Yeah, cool. So uh, one of the rooms is a war room with a map of the dragon's attack pattern. Uh, the adventure does not tell you what that attack pattern is. So either make one yourself, or you have to understand uh, and understand that the characters are going to want to give. They're going to want you to give them the best place to head off the dragon. Once they see this. So you're going to have to then either read ahead to the next chapter to have that information or make it up yourself. 
And, and there's no way your characters aren't going to ask because there's this whole like miniature setup and you pull a lever and the, the dragon literally flies around yeah. on its course. Right. So it just begs description <laughs> and your players are going to say, well, right. what is that pattern? You're going to have to go to the other chapter four and figure <laughs> right. it out. So. That's why you need to know ahead of time. And yeah. this is another thing, right? It's super cool. I love yeah. this visual. Uh, you know, the, the, really kudos cool. to the designer on this. Great uh, visual, great use, of, especially with D and D players who love minis, right? I mean, it's, yeah. I could just see see them, but the information that's actually needed isn't provided, so it makes it, it makes it harder for the DM. Uh, in in Zardok's quarters, there is a trap that creates a poison cloud if you mess around with his stuff. Uh, the the poison cloud lasts for ten minutes but you have to make a saving throw at the beginning of each round or take 22 poison damage. Uh, so just be, be aware of that. It doesn't say once you make the save, you don't have to anymore. So, you know, unless you want to make, what is it? You know, a hundred, a uh, hundred saving throws or tw take 22 points of poison damage each round. Uh, they're they're going to have to either run out of the room or, you know, deal with that in some other way. Uh, there are two elevators in the fortress that continually move up and down between the three levels. So at some point to get up to the next levels, the characters are probably going to take the elevators. Uh, there is a shaft that runs from the bottom all the way to the top too, which can be climbed, uh, but the elevators are seem to be there uh, for that reason. So it's not a linear dungeon where they're obviously going to be coming at something from one specific direction. It could be several different directions. And I really like that aspect of it. Like it's, it's yeah. really neat. I like that 3d and it, that it's not just stairs up, but elevator gives it a very different feel. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah. The only, the only fear I have is sometimes characters might be hesitant to get on an elevator. Um, a, can it fit all of them? Cause mm -hmm. technically it's 10 by 10. So you, you can cram them all on. Don't don't make them divide up unless you think they would yeah. enjoy that experience. And um, it's 100 feet between each level, so it takes one minute to go either up or down, right? Which is yeah. significant. Yep. Uh, there is a private dining hall where Grandolfa herself and her bodyguard cooks are having a meal. And you're going to have to think ahead of time how you want to play her because she is aware of uh Zardarok's plans and she doesn't really care she doesn't not going to help him but she also doesn't want to stop him per se um so how you present her like any other choice is going to uh, affect the character's choices if you play her as sort of horribly evil there might be a fight right away if you play her as too helpful it doesn't really capture who she is. So you, you're going to want to think about that. Yeah. It would have been nice if there'd been a bit more guidance mm -hmm. here on yeah. how to handle this. Because she, she will, she, I mean, she will help, but she won't help. She's helped in the sense that she's already started to overthrow him. So there are certain guards who will turn sort of toward you or help you not necessarily in combat, but just by ignoring you. But she definitely doesn't say, I will send my guards to assist you in, in defeating him. She just sort of wants to stand back and be 
be a uh, spectator here. Which, which is dissatisfying to me. And this mm -hmm. happens a lot in, in all adventures, not just this one, but, but just sort of where it's like, yeah, I'm okay with you doing things, but whatever you want to do, like, seriously, like she, she yeah. doesn't have an angle on this or a suggestion. Right. But I do say that whoever wrote this piece about the meal that is served to the characters, yes, it's five stars from me because oh, it yeah. says uh, it's cooked intellect devour, it's mm -hmm. brain body stewing in its own juices, and that they can partake in the feast, but the food has a thin layer of ash covering that spoils the taste yes. because that's the problem with the meal. Right, right. It's the ash. I mean, this is just the, the details in some of these areas are astoundingly brilliant. Uh, yeah. and, and that's just that's just a, another one example of and it and it ties into the greater story of D&D &D as well, because she comes from Grackle Stew, which is right. uh, from out of the abyss. And, and there's yep. kind of her empire of underdark mushroom ale stuff going on. So there's aspects yeah. of that. But yeah. yeah, this this filthy, I think that's the word that she was with it. And I'm remembering this from from memory, not looking at the text. It's filthy mushroom ale which i think is what i'm going to open as soon as i i'm done uh yeah. with this podcast have have a little filthy <laughs> mushroom ale uh, i hate stuff. mushrooms so it's not oh, where I, i'm going mushrooms are delicious i love mushrooms uh that's it and that was the last episode of the podcast yeah and, and we were done <laughs> devolved so, into fighting so uh the so that that's the important things i think that are that are on the main level um, the ice gate level really doesn't have a heck of a lot going on. There are two separate areas where there are gears that open each of the two doors that let the dragon out. So you can only shut one door at a time uh, unless you go to a different area and sync up your timing with someone else. And they're quite far apart. So that, that's sort of a, it's an interesting thing. I'm not sure why it was done. It, it's not good. It's not bad. It just is. Yeah, it is. But there, there is a workshop area. Uh, there where part of the box text says in the middle of the room surrounded surrounded by twisted bits of metal is a half finished exoskeleton exoskeletal construct like the ones you encountered in the room you came from and i looked back to the previous room and there's no mention of any half finished exoskeletal constructs hmm. so i don't know what happened there uh if if someone else has read this and knows what it's referring to, let Maybe me know. Maybe what they mean are the Dwergar hammers themselves, which are constructs. So maybe it's half-finished Dwergar hammers or something like that. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. That's uh, probably the simplest explanation, but you're right. It makes it sound like it's something more fantastic, especially yeah. since the Shardal and Dragon flew out of here. Right. The other thing they don't do on this level is to give you any information about it. Right. And sometimes characters need that real 100%, yeah. I know what's what happened. And yeah. this is the opportunity to have any number of these people that you could interrogate them and they would tell mm -hmm. you, Yes, you know, it was built in the forges down below. Yep. It flew out. Its job is to destroy the ten towns. It will do so if no one can stop it. Right. And this is what its breath weapon does. And this is it some vulnerability it might have. Any of that information here would have been valuable to the story, valuable to the mechanics of the game and the fight that probably will be coming. Um, after it defeats seven of the 10 towns, uh, 
but yeah, something else is needed there. So that was the ice gate level. And then down below at the forge level, there is a lot of things going on. There is uh, a mining area. There is a place where uh, some, an, an umber hulk has been uh, captured. captured. And so those are neat things, but they're not important to the story and they're not difficult to DM. Um, so we're just kind of glossing over those. And they're fun. I mean, th this yeah. that's one thing I like is you get a nice underdark taste, even though you're up in a mountain. True. And so the, the, the story is happening in, say, the throne room of Zardarok, uh, because he has a Myconid sovereign held there who's being forced to supply spores to create Quagoth spore servants. And so, you know, there's a lot going on there. I was a little disappointed that it didn't go any further. There was no, there was no tie into anything happening in the 10 towns. It wasn't part of the creation of the dragon was using these spores. You know, it just, it sort of was, and then that's it. And it really didn't give anything. What happens if you rescue the, the, the sovereign. Right. Especially because we're told up at the beginning that this is a big event, right? One of the ways you level is to free the Myconid sovereign. Right. It's the one at one, you need to do two things out of three and one of them is free. And so it's like, well, why is this so important? It's right. Clear. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of me is hoping that later in one of the other adventures in this book, that there's something to do with it. But, if if that has the case, it should have been mentioned up front that, you know, see chapter seven for area three, where the Mike and sovereign reappears if you saved him and, and helps you. So it's, it's just, it's, there's, it's cool in and of itself, but it's not part of a larger whole that it could have been. Um, there are dungeons down in the forge level and there are interesting NPCs, but again, nothing that's essential to the story either the local story or the larger story of the campaign. This is a perfect place to put a ton of Durgar traders, quote unquote traders, who uh, Zardarok has accused of some slight, whether it be real or imagined. Then you get the idea of why are there 27 Durgar locked away in cells? They can say our master, you know, he's, he is paranoid. He sees conspiracies everywhere continuing along that story that's then it becomes narratively important and possibly game mechanically important if you free them and they can then help you overrun uh the rest of the the bad guys yeah uh in area 29 there's a temple to deep dora where zardarok might be located there is a mind flayer being held prisoner here his tentacles have been cut off so he can't suck out your brains and the part of his brain that handles psionic abilities has been removed. So he's just sort of a commoner uh, mind player, if you will. But again, there's no, no other, he could have information here about anything that's about to happen in the rest of the adventure, but it's not provided. Uh, it seems like I get the feeling this was sort of done in a vacuum and then just ported into this adventure without, really connecting things that could be connected. It, it is a really interesting addition that if it had a purpose would be really brilliant, right? If mm -hmm. this, right. You know, and, and like, as for an example, 
if it could somehow control either Dwergar leader. Yeah. Which is a thing that's happened all throughout Forgotten Realms history where a mind flare will control a city secretly, right? Like the players mm -hmm. could possibly use this mind flare. And this is what, you know, would be totally in doing with Forgotten Realms history where mm -hmm. the players would use, make a pact with a mind flare to keep the Dwergar pacified. Right. Yeah. So that would be a really neat potential, but right. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And and even if if this mind flayer became sort of an NPC that the characters could interact with in an ongoing way, provide, you know, they help him deal with what has happened to him and it. then he, oh yeah, him or her it they and then um they get yeah something in return information wise or whatever it's just not there yeah uh another area there is the priest of deep dwer who is actually a bearded devil in disguise and so this is where we learn although we we it was mentioned earlier that mm -hmm. it's not deep duera that is actually giving uh Zardarok his power it's asmodeus yeah. Uh, and it's cool. I love, love the story, but again, I don't know if there's a, any larger. I mean, th there has to be right. Ever confrontation at candle keep, uh, before fifth edition was really out had Asmodeus yeah. and we've seen Asmodeus time and time again. It's a common thread through almost all of the adventures. And here we are again that, you know, the secret evil, even though it's Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, we've got Asmodeus, you know, thick all throughout. Yep. Um, I, I think it's neat for larger D&D 5e world building. And I expect at some point we're going to see this Asmodeus thing show up. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe in this edition. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't really serve the practical purposes of the DM for this story. And that's where I would switch all Asmodeus, edit, find, replace all Asmodeus with Oral herself. Oral, yeah. And have it be that Oral is here manipulating the Dwergar as well. And that and that if you could find this out, that would be, be a big aha, we are dealing a blow to the Frost Maiden. Yes, yeah. we're on track. We're making progress again in this book against the big threat, the big bad. Mm-hmm. Making it as modious, most parties are going to be like, "Oh, okay. Well, who cares? Like, we're gonna, right? We're gonna retire these characters before we ever do anything with that information, right? It's it's neat on the larger whole, but I would I would change this. Yeah, true. Uh, the other area of interest I thought of was the torture chamber, where you also may find Zardarok. Uh, if you don't, you can go in and rescue an innocent. Well, innocent in terms of she was not trying to overthrow uh, Zardarok, even though he thinks she was. And so if the characters rescue her, she will join them. But when they do run into Zardarok, she will turn against the characters to prove to <laughs> Zardarok that she wasn't she's really. Yeah, she's good to, you know, she's loyal to him, which I thought was actually good i thought that was a a good twist that yeah, it's cool you know th this is a duragar after all you know even though you may have rescued her she is still a duragar she is going to do what duragar do in this uh in this adventure yeah which yeah. is be do evil things so okay. uh 
I, I like that little twist. Give a ride, give a scorpion a ride. You get stung at the end, right? True story. And uh, then the final section is called Fortress Fallout. It tells you that the dragon will not return until it completes its destructive agenda. But we are not told how long that's going to take. Um, if the dragon does come back and nothing has been done at the fortress to bring down the Durgar, the dragon can be healed and then sent back out to do whatever uh, Zardarok wishes. So that's chapter three. Uh, Overall, I I liked it just as a discrete dungeon, uh, as a connector to the larger story that's being told in this campaign. It felt just like a discrete dungeon. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. it's it's very interesting, um, and and kind of regardless of this, you know, what you did in chapter three, whether you explored this location or not you're going to go on to chapter four and deal with the repercussions of the Shardalan dragon attack. Um, it, it, there are a lot of neat pieces in here. So I, I do like the overall location and there are some great little tidbits like in the treasure vault, there is a Piwaf, Piwafwi. Yeah. <laughs> it's which used to be mentioned in all the old AD and D products is this drow kind of cloak that they would wear. And, and, and right. it's an old Drizzt, Stored in novels, uh, dark spider silk cloak, and the item has the properties of a cloak of elvenkind, but loses it, its magic if exposed to sunlight for one hour without interruption, which is what these all these old adventures would have heaps and heaps of treasure, and all right. of it would become non-magical. But it begs the question, Yeah, under the rhyme situation... There is no direct sunlight. Is there no... Does So I guess for the purposes of this mod, it probably works. And then yeah. when the mod, when you, if you, if, and when you solve the problem with oral, then it would lose its properties. So. Yeah. See, I could see players that I know refusing to solve the problem. So the treasure <laughs> that they have would not be ruined. Yeah, that could happen. You know? <laughs> yep. So anything else to add about chapter three? No, I think we've covered it. Okay. So next time we will talk about chapter four, which is the dragon attack on the 10 towns for everybody out there listening. Thank you so much. And thank you to the patrons who keep the lights on. I want to give an end of year, beginning of year shout out to those patrons who are on the queen's court, um, who are our highest level donors. They are Andrew Dacey, Andy Olson, Brian Kurtz, Craig, just Craig, Eric Bontz, GM Gerrymander, Jesse Edmund, also known as our editor, Doc Palindrome, uh, Jim, John C. LeMay, John Carney, Kevin Lovecraft, Richard Wyatt, Schmitty, Tiberius, Starcrash Smith, and Todd Crapper. Thank you all so much for your support, your financial support, and your moral Thank support you. uh, for this show and for the other shows in the Misdirected Mark Network. Uh, so you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash MMP. You can even for just a dollar uh, that helps us pay our hosting costs and so on. And uh, thanks. Teos, social media, you, where? You roll on a table to determine which social medium account I'm using. <laughs> but regardless of your role result, it is at AlphaStream on Twitter and go. AlphaStream.org as my blog. Yep. And you can find me 
on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and tell us things like, what is your favorite Dungeon Master's Guide? Which edition? And we will be getting a new Twitter feed for the show very soon. I get to say this. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, now that we are a brand new show in a brand new year, what are we going to do now? We're going to sit down and be thankful that 2020 is coming to a close. And go kill some 2020. Let's go kill 2020. <laughs> yes. Yes.